1: author of the Amazon best-selling book, Average Joe, Be the Silicon Valley Tech Genius. The book is focused on how to think, speak, and create like some of the brightest tech founders in the world. It has helped individuals and businesses engage in slow creation cycles, improve the morale of the development teams, and increase the delivery potential of all of their solutions overall. Good morning, Sean.
0: Welcome to Business Owners Radio. Hey, Shai. Thanks for having me. Good morning. And we're so excited to have you here today to talk about your book, Average Joe, and it's making a big splash. Tell us what inspired you to write this book.
2: Yeah, thanks, Shai. Thanks for having me. And I think the inspirational moment came over time, but it really culminated when I heard a client tell me I'm a tech genius. And that phrase just kind of bounced around in my head. And as a consultant in the technology field, at first it was a cheesy kind of cliche moment. And then I began to step back and realize, wow, he was impressed by how I was communicating and not necessarily my intelligence or my creativity or any of my experience. It was really how I articulated complexity. And I thought to myself, my God, I could teach anyone how to do that. And even those who may not score well on psychometric IQ score tests or standardized math and whatnot, they could still present themselves with perfect clarity, crystallized vision, and they can impress any client that they work for and go from zero to hero just by how they articulate their subject matter. So that really got under my skin and into my bloodstream and I continued to follow it out as a passion.
0: Yeah, and it seems like you are really the right person to bring this information into the world. I mean, tell us more about your background. I know you you draw from over 20 years of experience in technology as a consultant, and I know you've written several books on software development. And tell us how that influenced your ability to create, your ability
2: to translate this language for us. Sure. So 21 years in the tech industry, The first half of my career was software development. I was in my mid-20s and they called me a consultant and I didn't even know what that was (laughs) and learned the hard way that you need a few gray hairs for people to actually listen to what you have to say. Second half of my career, got into startups and raised venture funding after writing a couple books on software development on the Microsoft stack. And that was a lot of fun, learned a lot and helped to communicate and articulate and slowly progress from plateau to plateau. And then in the venture funding world, working through the Techstars network and being a part of two different accelerators, I learned how to shape products, create startups, launch and drive revenue. And my second startup drove and generated $1.8 million in revenue before we shut it down. And we had raised multiple rounds of funding for that one. And kind of got proof of life, but never really truly fully capitalized. And product market fit was eh, okay, but really didn't drive the nail through the woods. So we took a step back from that. But then from there, returning to consulting and now running a company, Product Perfect, out of Southern California. So we build and customize and modernize software for enterprises and, and large companies and continue to grow the business. But that is in a nutshell where I've come from. And the vein of activity and the vein of energy through that whole series of learnings has been creating really a perfect product and articulating a perfect vision.
0: I love that. And I also really like the way you talk about creativity. I want to dive into the book a little bit. So I know in chapter three, you talk about creativity and this idea of person versus process. And I really think this is part of this overall theme of the myth of the tech genius. Tell us a little bit more about that. When we think about creativity, what do we get wrong?
2: Well, I think a lot of people are too hard on themselves. First of all, everyone's creative. And there was a moment of creativity that you may have had in your career, you might have been in a classroom as a child, but I worked with a neuroscientist out of the University of California, Los Angeles, Professor Jesse Rissman, uh, Dr. Jesse Rissman, and we worked really hard all through COVID. And the process of creativity that neuroscientists understand very cleanly in in cat scans, MRI scans, PET scans. There's a scan for every acronym, but they have found that the brain just lights up when you flip off your executive control network, that which is your decision making and your normal bill paying and where should I eat for lunch and all the different daily activity work that you do. And you flip on what's called the default mode network. And this is the background thread activity. And 60 to 80% of all the energy that your brain consumes is happening when you're daydreaming, when you're staring off into space, when you're in the shower, just looking at the steam rise, doing the dishes, not thinking about it, driving to work, not thinking about how fast you got there. Oh, am I already here, right? That is the default mode network. And your brain is firing on all cylinders. And neuroscientists study that. They're fascinated by it. 15 years ago, they had some breakthroughs in this area. And so since then, it's just gone hog wild with this topic. But the general idea of creativity is not readily accessible from where neuroscientists sit to where you and I sit. We don't get to see all that they see, and we don't quite understand what they understand. And so we spent months and months studying it together. And the end result of that work was we created a framework called the Slow Create Framework you can check it out at slowcreate.com. The Slowcreate framework is a free mental model and process by which anyone can learn how to create, whether it be a tech product, the next biggest thing in the startup world, whatever the subject matter is that you're working in, that that your hands, the clay of your hands, if you will, the Slowcreate framework can help you systematically improve your ideation and creativity cycles according to neuroscience. And so You don't have to learn how to code. You don't have to know anything technical at all, actually. You can just pick it up, download the PDFs, learn how to do it, and practice it on a daily basis. So that is the Trojan horse big idea within the other big idea of the book. But the person versus process, coming back to that, Frank Lloyd Wright, one of the famous architects of our era, he sat down while the client was on the way to look at the plans for Falling Water, a statement piece celebrated to this day as one of the greatest designed homes in the world. And the client said, I want to see what you got. And he hadn't drawn anything yet. He had literally wasted months, quote unquote, some of the biographers talk about. And he sat down hearing that the guy's on the way to the studio. And he sat down and in two hours drew the whole house, the whole house. And the assistants were all around him kind of watching. They recall the situation like it was just like magic flowing out of his sleeves, you know, and I think everyone looks at people like that and they say, I want to be like that. I want to be the startup founder who stands up and pitches their tech company and the investor goes, oh my God, and reaches back in his back pocket and throws the wallet at the guy. (laughs) Take my money, you know. It's not that easy, though. And the true story of Frank Lloyd Wright was that he was systematically slow creating that house for months. He had been imagining it as he walked through the forest, you know, was in this kind of grassland, green, watery sort of creek zone. And so he was feeling the textures and he was putting it together in his head before he actually sat down to draw it. So I think the, the process that he went through, the hidden process, and the book really unpacks what the hidden processes were for Slack, for Dropbox, for Groupon, for some of these other fastest growing tech companies in the world, and shows what people really have to go through to build that state-of-the-art product that changes the world.
1: I love your example, Frank Lloyd Wright, and I want to go into slow-create some more, but before I do that, you've brought up Frank Lloyd Wright, and my mind lit up, as you mentioned before, is that when I was four years old, I shook Frank Lloyd Wright's hand. It's a long story, but it was very memorable and I grew up in Wisconsin where he was from. So a lot of his architecture is a big deal with me, but it really pulls back this element of the myth of the tech genius way back in time. I didn't even think that far back. I was thinking of the, the standard Steve Jobs and Elon Musk. And so tell me what's behind some of the myth of the tech genius and what your findings were. And then let's go into...
2: slow create side sure well in 1840 a scottish philosopher thomas carlyle had invented this mantra this theory that he wrote a good 80,000 words on and he called it great man's theory great man's theory is this idea that we have hero worship in our blood that we want to worship heroes that we want to position ourselves in a deficit and look upward toward a knight or a king or a prince And in quoting him, Ah, does not every true man feel that he himself is made higher by doing reverence to what is really above him? And so he spent years and years of his life writing about people like Odin, this Scandinavian Norse god who would empower Viking warriors on the battlefield. And they would be filled with his spirit and they would go out and be slaying the enemy and impervious to injury. And that's where we get the word berserk because they called those guys berserkers. And so this Odin character was one of the original great men that was looked to. In tech, we also have our Odins, we have our great men. And the writers and the creators and the pontificators and inventors and innovators since the beginning of time all the way till present day have struggled with this issue. And one of them was the greatest novelist of the Victorian era, Charles Dickens, who consequently looked up to Thomas Carlyle himself and would carry his books around and would read them hundreds of times. And they asked him some questions and he would answer and he would kind of emulate the theories and the notions of his hero, Carlyle. And so if only dickens would have known that he himself would far surpass his mentor and and that in his own hands and in his own mind were the innovations yet to be developed one of the greatest phrases i caught out of dickens was we forge the chains we wear in life and we end the book with that one spoiler alert there this idea that we ourselves bind ourselves to these constraints right we say binary question am i or am i not a tech genius am i or am i not a brilliant creator am i or am i not And the binary nature of that is prohibitive. It is exclusive. Whereas the true nature, the true reality is very inclusive and it's more of a spectrum. It's not black and white. It's all sorts of color, right? So if you try to take a student and say, if you fail this test, you're worthless, right? You're never going anywhere in life. Well, obviously everyone cringes at that idea. We would never tell a student that I have two daughters and I'm always looking to encourage them at any level of the spectrum that they're operating in to continue to put forth their greatest effort and to be creative on how they approach their work every day. Because the binary nature of life and the way our systems are structured, it is exclusive driven systems, right? And pulling back the science, pulling back the philosophy and, and looking at the tech industry secondarily, it, the great man theory is truly a problem. It's a real problem. And you have to understand both sides of that equation and position yourself in that math problem to then find your way out of it. But The book helps you to not play that game. It helps you to step around it and to ignore that chatter and that noise and to zoom forward past the issue like a car accident on the freeway that you don't need to stop for.
1: And in reading an excerpt in your book, what's really coming out here for me is that you're realizing the lockup we all have as far as innovation or creativity or just even writing or creating anything is at some point we stop. At some point, there's something we can't get around. And I like how you've staged a framework, in this case, slow create. Can you walk us through that a little bit and what it addresses as far as this lockup we have?
2: So anytime you get to a point where you're pontificating, imagining or creating, you are putting your ideas to paper, you're writing a business plan, you're writing code, you're fashioning a product, you're designing the user interface, you're sculpting, you're painting, whatever it might be, the creative process is natural. Until it becomes blocked up, until you hit a brick wall. And the original brick wall, Hutchinson's wall, Elliot Hutchinson back in the 40s had created a visual for this. And it literally is a wall. The, the line tries to go up against the wall and it fails, but you have to go around it, you have to go over it, you know, under it. You know, It's like a good camp song, can't go under it. You know, And so Hutchinson's wall has been the issue, the writer's block, the white canvas problem. What do I draw? What do I write? What do I do? I don't know, and shrug and walk away amazingly, this has found its way into literally every marketing department, every startup founder's basement where they're inventing the next big thing. It is an unstoppable force. And so the Create framework helps, number one, to overcome that. Number two, it helps you to systematically, on a daily basis, take all the subject matter that you've already been doing. You've already been in the finance industry or the agriculture industry or the tech industry or whatever you're in. For decades, even if you're listening to this podcast, you know, your subject matter, you know, your work, right? And if you're just starting your career, that's fine. You still finding your way on which specific industry you want to really niche on. That's great. Continue to do that. I would encourage you to find that niche and to stick to it. But once the subject matter is well known to you, and you have mastery of craft and, and getting to mastery of craft takes time. So give yourself 10 to 15 years, maybe even 20 years. And that's okay too. Don't be discouraged of that. I'm not saying don't do anything for 20 years. I'm just saying don't be so hard on yourself. If you don't have mastery of craft, it takes time and it's along the way, right? It's not something that is expected of you early on. And so when you do find yourself the expert in the room, or you do find yourself able to speak intelligently about a topic, the create framework helps you to take that subject matter and to formulate it and categorize it and matriculate it into a system on paper. We call it a canvas. And you plot it all out, kind of like the business model canvas, if you've ever heard of that, where you plot out like your competitors and your, it's like a mini business plan in one view. Well, this is the same idea, but it's a problem statement with all the factors around the problem and the innovations to date and all the progress you've made on it all in one view. So you can see it all together. And then Dr. Jesse Risman and I worked through a process by which you can go from the left side to the right side of the canvas and walk down what's called the mindless work ladder. And L A D D E R stands for let go, antenna, become an antenna, uh, D for drift, D for daydream, E for emerge, and R for recharacterize. And so it helps you through that process of the default mode network of invoking neuroscience on the problem domain, on the unsolved. And when you invoke neuroscience systematically on the unsolved, you then get what we call a nibble. It's kind of like fishing you throw your bait out into the ocean, you, you bait the hook, if you will. And then you get a nibble and you try to reel it in, right? And everyone wants to catch that big idea. We want to, oh gosh, huge shark I caught today. Isn't that amazing? And get that picture. But a lot of times you get a lot of little fish and that's okay. You just throw them back. But the little nibbles, we call them nibbles of synthesis on the right side of the canvas, allow you to over time stack those up and some of them turn into inflections. And venture capitalist Mike Maples does a great job of explaining inflections. They're seeing the future where you have some industry changes or some momentum changes, or there might be an innovation or regulatory change that might spark an industry and so forth. But these nibbles are on the right side. And so the canvas allows you to plot it all out and solve or innovate. Then if you get a lot of canvases, you can stack them in a pipeline. And so behind my monitors, I have my pipelines and my canvases. And my brain is just kind of looking at those, recalling the memory very quickly, years and years of thought around topics that is very hard to keep memorized in local memory, RAM, if you will. But the Slow Crate framework helps you to always keep them top of mind. And so anytime I slip into that daydream or that default mode network, my brain is able to hit those very consecutively. And I've actually come through the other side on several. I and mean, I have people tell me, hey, this is really cool. And I think this is helping. And then finally, at the end of the Slow Crate framework, coming out the pipeline, you have the triad. And the triad is a communication model that helps anyone articulate what they're doing, why they're doing it, why they're the best in the world, or they have mastery of craft. And it bubbles up from that triangle in the middle. And if you go to the book website, averagejoetechgenius.com, there's over 26 videos that explain all of this in detail. Or if you go to slowcreate.com and get a real condensed view of specifically the framework. The book, of course, Average Joe on Amazon hit the bestseller list, and we're hoping to get back on it. But the triad helps you with those three parts. It's the interesting problems along the bottom, the narrow focus on the left, and the articulate speech on the right. And learning how to articulate in just the fewest words with the most poignant and distinct clarity is what drives upward the inflections to reach the top of the triangle, which is fascination. And so you go from sitting in the corner with nothing to say to standing up in front of investors or family and friends or even just your spouse or your loved ones articulating with masterclass, crystallized clarity, exactly what you work on. And their eyes get big and they say, wow, that's amazing. And getting to that point where they remember you is everything, isn't it? I mean, wow, that guy or that gal, I have to work with them. I would love to work with them. Everyone has like a number one smartest person they've ever worked with, right? And you could be that person for a lot of the people you work with. You don't have to be smarter. You just have to learn how to articulate and know what to work on and what not to work on and pick the right challenges and reshape your words and reshape your thoughts. So I'm excited about it. I use it every day. So that's the framework.
0: And can you give us an example, Sean, of how I can use this right now in my business, this way of thinking, this type of a framework, to solve a common problem? Either I'm trying to, let's say, perhaps attract more customers. I'm trying to get more revenue, which we all know we have to be very innovative in this new environment.
2: Where would someone start? Well, it's certainly a narrow problem, a very carefully scoped issue, if we look at something that requires deeper thought. So pulling on a lever, pushing a button, some of these problems are solved with writing a check, right? Here's one. I've had people send me theirs and I've been watching social media and some interesting hashtags. We, we hashtag when people are making progress on the slow create framework. We hashtag average Joe tech genius for the book and then a hashtag slow create, but a, a very simple thing like a logo. You would think it's simple, right? People spend, I think Apple's logo costs Steve jobs, $250,000. And so when you're looking at your logo and you're thinking about your brand and you're trying to improve it and what do I need to do? Or you're trying to create that new thing. Just getting through that logo process or that business name problem, what did we name this thing, right? Going through the SoulCrate framework and putting that on the top left, here's my problem statement, and then here's all my factors, actors, and and details, and then you, patterns, details, and secrets in the next row, and then the unsolved, and the ladder, and the nibbles, and then inflections along the bottom. Going through that rigor will help you to figure out what logo, why, and what to say about it. And the narrative of the logo and how to tell the story of the brand and the founding myth, as they call it, it's a story of the founder and great stories that have a picture involved. You process through your subject matter, like your hands are just digging into that clay and just kind of cranking through it on a daily basis. So you walk into the office with your coffee in the morning, you're thinking about the logo, you're slow creating, your mind's drifting off, you're re-emerging and then you're scribbling down stuff. You come to meetings about the logo, and you're well prepared with three or four ideas that came to you. And they're like, wow, how does this guy have so many ideas? Well, it's because he's putting his brain through a system. And I think we underestimate what the brain can do. And people tell me, I thought this was a book about tech startups. And I'm like, yeah, it is. It totally is about the tech industry, the tech world, but it also permeates that and expands beyond it. Like uh, the old movie from the 70s or 60s, A Blob. I don't know if you saw that, but it was like this can of Jello that goes bad in the trash. And then it turns into this big, massive blob that starts eating the house and eats everywhere. But this idea is much bigger than the tech industry. It's taking a life of its own.
0: Hey, Sean, you know, in chapter two of the book, you talk a lot about intelligence versus genius, right? And how sometimes people can get hung up on this idea of intelligence and how that can prevent them from moving forward in some way. We see this in business. Can you speak a little bit to that?
2: Yeah, thank you. The famous Mozart letter comes to mind. In 1815, there was purportedly a letter by Mozart where he says, hey, this is how I create my master class songs. And the letter reads that he's entirely alone. He's of good cheer, it says, traveling in a carriage, walking after a good meal or maybe he's up at night, he can't sleep. But then these ideas just start flowing into his mind and he calls it fire in his soul. And he sees the idea, the idea gets huge, it's a masterful moment of cloud above his head, if you will. And then he writes the composition and he says, it rarely differs on paper from what was in my imagination, quote unquote. And this idea had basically blown up since 1815 to today. Well, turns out the letter was a forgery and it was though it was copied and replicated hundreds of thousands of times and in fact when they studied mozart's work truly he was amazing don't get me wrong but his wife would collect his sketches where he was actually iterating and it was very different than that forged letter would portray it in fact there were areas he scratched off and he he would write little notes to himself and these iterations be it not as many as we'd like there were a lot of them that she stacked up and They really show the humanity of the genius, right? These very intelligent, very successful people. In fact, Mozart had access to resources, his family encouraged his gifting, and there was a lot that went into his success story. But other people along the way have tried to find out what is the source of that genius and what about these kids who, like Michael Kearney, who was so smart, he told his pediatrician at six months old that I have a left ear infection. You know, my kids didn't talk at six months. I think it took them until they were 18 months or almost two years old to talk. I can't believe that a child would tell his pediatrician, I have an ear infection. So, with an IQ of over 200, Michael Kearney graduated college at the age of 10. You know, who does that? Right. So, certainly there are amazing people out there, gifted children. Absolutely. But, you know, what is Michael Kearney doing today? Well, bless his heart. Good for him. I'm happy he's following his dreams. But you might be surprised in what those dreams are. He's doing improv in Nashville, which is awesome. Good for him. It takes a lot of brains to do improv, by the way. It's very hard. And I would love to come see it. But it just shocked me. Like, oh, wow. And people asked him, what are you doing that for? Why don't you do other things? He said, oh, other people can solve all those other problems. You know, I have full confidence they can solve all those things, which is kind of empowering too, if you think about it. It's an unforeseen empowering moment that a genius told the meager rest of us, right? And I think of what these geniuses have done in the psychometric scoring system itself, trying to locate and find these highly intelligent people like the next Bill Gates. But all the psychometrics in the scoring and the aptitude tests, all of that originating back around the first World War into World War II, where they were categorizing soldiers and saying, well, you go in the trenches and you stay in the tent and you're going to help me on the battle strategy side. And that sort of makes sense, but it was never meant to be a defining attribute of our society. When some of the guys who invented that, Louis Terman and others, they got into debates around it because it wasn't really supposed to be the end all. And I think a lot of kids get really discouraged when they hear an IQ score, an SAT test score, a college admission test scoring, when they're denied access to resources based on filling in a bubble. You know, oh, shoot, I should have answered that one differently. You know, this is silly. This is crazy talk right now. I get that hiring smart people is good for business. Absolutely. But I think that we could take it way too far. And the worship of intelligence, people who have been called geniuses and brilliant, they were actually just very hardworking. You look at people like Churchill, who would just obsessively iterate. He triple spaced all his writings, you know, so that he could go back and just continue to rehash and regurgitate until it was perfect. Abraham Lincoln, not very educated, but he would carry all these scraps of speech parts and segments and fragments in his hat and sort of slow create his way to a speech. And so he'd open up his hat, he'd pull out all these pieces of paper, he'd rearrange them, and then boom, he'd go out on the stage and put it all together. And he had a way of solving what his deficits were. And I believe that Average Joe helps really anyone matriculate and find the Rubik's Cube situational disadvantage deficit that they're in and reformulate and then come out the other side with pristine skill that is not college-based, it's not, it's not Ivy League education-based, it's technique. And the beautiful thing about it is that it can be transferred seamlessly and free to anyone. So I'm excited about the Intelligence Chapter 2. If you read anything, check that out if you're interested in intelligence measurement and positioning yourself in, in terms of your intellect. Well, Sean, what can I say? It's been a
0: fantastic interview. So great to have time with you today. Craig and I really enjoyed it.
2: No, thanks for having me, Shai. Thanks, Craig. Is there anything else you'd like to leave with our audience? check out the book Genius.com, Amazon bestseller, and check out SlowCreate.com for more on the SlowCreate framework. And if you need any software, my team and I would love to help you. We're at ProductPerfect.com here in Southern California. Other than that, you can follow me on Twitter at ShawneePants.
1: Our guest today has been Sean Livermore, author of the Amazon bestseller Average Joe, Be the Silicon Valley Tech Genius. As always, you can learn more about Sean as well as find links to his content and website at businessownersradio.com.
0: Thank you for joining us on Business Owners Radio. We hope you enjoyed today's show. As always, you can read more about each episode along with links and offers in the show notes on our website, businessownersradio.com. We want to hear your feedback